Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 47, Good Vibrations, where we take a look at spectroscopy not from atoms, but whole molecules. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Spectroscopy is the idea that you take a sample, throw some kind of electromagnetic radiation, light rays, at it, and see how the sample responds. Does it absorb or transmit that radiation? Maybe it gives off other radiation or stores it for later use. We have already seen some early hints of this in the 18th and 19th centuries with applying heat to a sample and seeing what color the sample glows. This is Kronstedt's blowpipe. Then Bunsen and Kirchhoff revolutionized atomic analysis with complete spectra in the visual range, and the spectral lines could be precisely measured in photographs. Spectral analysis is so important in chemistry that there are even undergraduate classes and textbooks devoted to it. The first textbook, and one of the favorites, is Silverstein and Bassler's Spectrometric Identification of Organic Compounds, first published in 1963. I own the fourth edition from 1981. There is an eighth edition from 2014. We will talk in this episode about spectra of molecules. We should remember that light doesn't just exist as the photons we can see. There is a huge variety of wavelengths, photon energies, our eyes don't respond to. William Herschel in 1800 first found that a thermometer, placed just past the red end of a visible spectrum, rose significantly in temperature, reporting this in his paper, Experiments on the Refrangibility of the Invisible Rays of the Sun. He thus discovered the infrared rays of light, where infrared means below red. Early work in taking infrared spectra began in 1881 by Englishmen William Abney and Edward Festing, who suggested that the absorption lines they recorded were somehow related to the chemical composition of their samples. Moreover, they even suggested that particular lines in the spectra corresponded to particular groups of atoms in their samples. The next step was taken by Italian Luigi Puccianti, who studied 15 different hydrocarbons spectroscopically in 1899 to 1900. But the giant among spectroscopists was William Koblenz, an American scientist who built, calibrated, and investigated the infrared spectra of over a hundred different compounds and published his spectra as fold-out charts from 1905 to 1907 under the title Investigations of Infrared Spectra. He observed reflectance, absorption, and transmittance spectra. His work made it very clear that particular groups of atoms do have characteristic absorption bands that can be generalized from molecule to molecule. Koblenz made it very clear that these infrared absorption bands result from vibrations of particular atomic groupings in molecules. 
So, why do particular groups of atoms vibrate at particular frequencies, which correspond to particular wavelengths of infrared light? You can imagine these atoms as little billiard balls, which we now know isn't true, but good enough here as a crude model, connected by bonds not understood at Puccianti and Coblenz's time, which we can model as springs. So imagine a series of balls connected together with springs to represent a molecule. These balls will flop around and vibrate back and forth depending on how strong that bond or spring is. Double bonds tend to be stronger than single bonds, so they are modeled as tighter springs. Single bonds might cause the balls to flop around or vibrate slowly. Double bonds tend to vibrate faster. Heavier atoms will flop around more slowly, lighter atoms faster. Molecules are generally not rigid. They have give, they flex, they bend, and do so in all sorts of different directions. Like pendulums which tick back and forth with a particular rate, a resonant frequency, so do balls and springs vibrate at resonant frequencies. Those vibrational frequencies that Koblenz saw can be assigned to exact motions of the atoms with particular infrared wavelengths. Or, put it another way, to get a particular bend or stretch requires you to zap the molecule with a particular wavelength of infrared light. Some of the common wavelengths you might encounter in doing infrared spectroscopy on various compounds are 2.7 to 2.79 micrometers, for a stretch between an oxygen and hydrogen atom in an alcohol. 2.85 micrometers for a stretch between a nitrogen and hydrogen in an amine with one hydrocarbon group hanging off. 3.33 to 3.52 micrometers for a stretch between a carbon and hydrogen in an alkane hydrocarbon. 4.25 micrometers for the stretch between a carbon and oxygen in carbon dioxide gas. 6.06 to 6.13 micrometers for the stretch between two double-bonded carbons. There are now extensive tables published to tell you likely wavelengths for a variety of stretching and bending motions between a variety of atoms. And you can work backwards, too. Suppose you have an unknown compound. You put a sample of it in your infrared spectrometer, see what wavelengths it absorbs, and then take an educated guess as to what structures are in the molecule. We've talked a bit about isotopes, so if you change a particular hydrogen to a deuterium atom, which is a bit heavier, that bond will have a slightly different resonance frequency, which will immediately appear in a comparison of infrared spectra. So the infrared spectrometer began to become a valuable tool in chemistry during the 20th century. Koblenz himself used infrared spectroscopy to view the progress of a reaction to purify a compound. He said, My purification of ethane, by noting the disappearance of the infrared absorption bands of the impurities that I removed by liquefaction and fractional distillation, was probably the first practical application of this method of controlling a manufacturing process. Another early use of infrared spectroscopy was in the 1920s under a joint project between General Motors and the University of Michigan 
to investigate engine knocking and hydrocarbons. We shall have a bit more on this topic later. Some early prototypes of infrared spectrometers were developed in the 1930s with application to analysis of synthetic rubber. As chemists saw the immediate advantages of using such instruments, a snowball effect began with more and more commercialization of such instruments by about 1947. By the 1950s, infrared spectroscopy became an integral tool used in many chemical laboratories. Another type of spectrometer that's in common use in a laboratory is a spectrophotometer. In such an instrument, generally measuring from visible light through ultraviolet, the sample is held and, like an infrared spectrometer, a beam of light is shot through it. A photo detector detects how much light the sample absorbs. You may have heard of ultraviolet rays, possibly in concert with getting sunburns. The year after William Herschel discovered infrared rays, Johann Wilhelm Ritter found that something darkened silver chloride the way visible light does, and that something was just beyond the violet end of the spectrum. The invisible rays beyond violet that darkened silver chloride came to be called ultraviolet, higher than violet. You can scan across the visible and ultraviolet range to create an absorption spectrum. The goal might be to color match dyes or pigments, or to check if a pH is correct using a colored indicator compound. German chemist August Beer in 1852 formulated what's now called Beer's Law, which states that the absorption of a sample is directly related to how much is in the solution. So you can even tell the concentration of compounds based on how much light they absorb. Perhaps the most famous of all commercial spectrophotometers was the model DU, invented by Arnold Beckman of pH meter fame, and was produced from 1941 to 1976. The second most famous of such instruments may be the Spectronic 20, or colloquially known as the Spec 20, made from 1953 to 2011, with variations by the optical firm Bausch Lomb. This is the spectrophotometer you may have encountered in undergraduate laboratories. Let's talk about organic compounds, particularly those with alternating single and double bonds. I mentioned them a couple of times in previous episodes, such as vitamin A. In the chemistry world, they are often called conjugated systems, as I mentioned in episode 45, and the term was invented by Johannes Thiele. What's the relationship between these conjugated compounds and ultraviolet visible spectroscopy? Recall from our discussion of molecular orbitals that a single bond is generally when two electrons in S or sp hybridized orbitals on nearby atoms meet and readjust their atomic orbitals to stretch and resonate around both atoms, a sigma bond. A double bond is when you also have two electrons in pi orbitals in nearby atoms meet and form a new molecular orbital with a pair of banana like probability volumes above and below the plane of the molecule, a pi bond. A double bond includes both the sigma and pi bonds. Conjugated systems include these alternating groups of no pi, 
and pi bonds. Because of quantum mechanics, again, we shouldn't merely say that the electrons are stuck around only a pair of atoms. For a conjugated system, they really are delocalized or smeared out to a greater or lesser degree along the entire chain of atoms, and perhaps we should visualize a molecular orbital along that entire chain where the electrons, all of them in those pi bonds, rearrange themselves. In molecular orbital theory, there are a whole series of possible energy levels, orbitals, in which the electrons can rearrange themselves. Generally, the electrons try to fall into the lowest orbitals spontaneously. We also know that electrons can jump from a lower energy orbital to a higher energy orbital by absorbing a photon. For a single pi orbital to a higher level anti-pi orbital, the energy required is pretty large, somewhere usually in the ultraviolet photon range. But as you add more double bonds to the molecular system, that jumping energy tends to fall, often into a photon energy in the visible range. Therefore, conjugated systems often have bright colors visible to the eye. These conjugated parts of a larger organic molecule are called chromophores. Beta carotene, a precursor to vitamin A, has 11 double bonds and is orangey red. Lycopene is conjugated, found in tomatoes, and is red. The heme section of the hemoglobin molecule has a large number of alternating single and double bonds and is red. We've talked about the similar structure of chlorophyll, a conjugated system which is bright green. The corin structure of vitamin B12 is red. Anthocyanidins, found in all sorts of plants, range in color from red to blue and are conjugated. Adding or removing one double bond can change the color of a particular molecule and can be monitored by a spectrophotometer. And that's the relation between color and alternating single and double bonds. There are more types of light rays to try on your sample. Let's go back to 1932 with chemists applying the new quantum theory to molecules. David Dennison considered the ammonia molecule NH3. From valence electron bonding theory, we know that the nitrogen in the middle of the molecule has a tetrahedral bonding structure like carbon with sp3 hybridization. There are three hydrogens forming the base of a pyramid in a triangular shape. But there is also a pair of electrons sticking out from the top of the molecule to complete the tetrahedron. These electrons don't bond with anything, but their molecular orbital still sticks out from the nitrogen atom and affects its reactivity as much as an actual atom. Or you can imagine the three hydrogens as the leaves of a tree, the nitrogen in the middle, and the lone pair of electrons as the trunk on the bottom. There are two equivalent structures with the hydrogens at the bottom or top. Quantum mechanically, the nitrogen can jump between the two structures, so the molecule acts like an umbrella that is normal, then inverts, then back again. That frequency of flip-flopping back and forth is a tiny amount of energy, 
even compared with the weak energy of infrared heat vibrations in molecules. Such a small amount of energy for the transition means a much longer wavelength than infrared. And David Dennison predicted such an effect. Norman Wright and Harrison Randall the following year observed this so-called ammonia inversion with an energy or wavelength of 0.15 millimeters. This is generally considered to be so long as to be far infrared, that is, far from the visible range. But let's go to even longer wavelengths. We know that light interacts with electron levels in atomic shells, and now light interacts with vibrations in bonds, But what about molecules rotating? As with all quantum mechanical objects, a molecule has quantized movements, and this extends to how it rotates. Only particular energy levels are allowed for rotation, and even this set of tiny energy differences is measurable and detectable with the right equipment. The energy of the light needed to affect rotational speeds is in the microwave wavelength range somewhere around 1 to 10 millimeters. The name microwave, however, is in comparison to typical broadcast radio waves, which can be tens or hundreds of meters long. Microwaves are tiny compared to AM or FM radio waves. The most practical everyday application of this energy of rotation is the microwave oven. Such ovens are tuned to be most practical for getting the water molecules to try to rotate around in a liquid, which most food is more or less. But water molecules in a liquid have to contend with other water molecules nearby, so their rotational motion is constricted and blocked. The best they can do is wobble back and forth, which causes the other molecules nearby to rock back and forth, gradually heating up the water molecules and your food. The tuned frequency for microwave ovens is 2.45 gigahertz, or 0.122 meters wavelength of the invisible light. Microwaves do get absorbed by food, obviously, or they wouldn't heat the food, so they only penetrate a short distance into the food. Therefore, stirring a liquid or letting the food stand, or even partially cooking it inside a conventional oven, may be necessary for somewhat uniform heating. Microwave ovens clearly shouldn't be used to cook for the purpose of killing dangerous bacteria like salmonella because they only penetrate the surface so far and don't heat food thoroughly. Microwaves are a form of light waves with very low energy, unlike x-rays, so they cannot make food radioactive, by the way. The microwave heating effect on food was discovered by an American engineer, Percy Spencer, when he was working for Raytheon in 1945 and had a Mr. Goodbar candy melt in his pocket. Then he tried popping popcorn and then an egg. Raytheon quickly patented the system. The first commercially available version was marketed in 1947 as a radar range and for home use started around 1972 by Lytton. In our next episode, we turn to proteins and look at how chemists determine some basic aspects of their structure in the first half of the 20th century. Until then, 
brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.